All right. Well, in our study, the Gospel of Mark, chapter uh, 2 is where uh, I want to pick up with verse 18. But let me remind you of a couple of things here. Um, this section we're in now, in chapter 2, and it will end at the beginning of chapter 3, actually ending in verse 6. Mark is focusing on five examples of conflict. Jesus is in his Galilean ministry, which if you follow on your outline, page 5, there's a wonderful map of the Sea of Galilee, which I will be refer have referred to, will be referring to. So if you have that close by, that might be helpful. But remember that um, the Galilean ministry of Jesus is essentially a two-year ministry. John, the Gospel of John, records the first year of his ministry, which is in Judea. And just to remind you again of the geography of the Eastern Mediterranean world of Israel. The north is Galilee, the south is Judea, and in the center is Samaria. The Galilean region to the north is a heavily agricultural region. There are hills, and then you go to the Golan, which is to the northeast, there are very high mountains. And then that caps off with Mount Hermon, the highest, over 9,000 feet above sea level, the highest mountain range, about 100-mile mountain range in the Middle East. But in between, Samaria was inhabited by Samaritans, which the Jews at that time referred to as half-breeds. And then Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, was, is a very mountainous region. Uh, Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, and there are large hills and mountains. It's only when you get close to the Mediterranean where you have what they call the Shepala, which is a, a coastal region where, again, you have good agriculture, good land. Jesus is in the northern region right now. He's in Galilee, and the first uh, four chapters largely focus on that. And so what John is doing, he's presented, excuse me, what he's doing, he's presented Jesus. We saw his baptism, very brief docudrama, short, pithy, bang, bang, bang episodes. He does not develop each one of these like Mark uh, Matthew does, like Luke does. But here he's saying, all right, how, how have the leaders of first century Judaism, how have they responded to the message of Jesus? And the answer is in one word, conflict. They're, they're pushing back. They're rejecting. And so that theme is what he's developing for us. Last week we looked at two examples of that conflict, pushback. Now, the third one is in verses 18 through verse 22, which we did cover last week. This is the, the pushback. He asks, he, he is asked, being asked by his opponents, the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus responded, he represents the new order of things, but the Bible will call the new covenant. And you can't mix the old and the new, whether putting a scrap of an old garment on a brand new piece of clothing or put wine into old wineskins, which is what they did in, in the first century. Now, the, th the next example, which is the fourth example, is conflict over the Sabbath. 
I want to remind you before we get started in verse 23, I want to remind you that the Sabbath is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The Sabbath is the, if, if you would choose any holy day in the calendar of first century Judaism, and, and really in one sense, even 21st century Judaism, it's the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Shabbat in Hebrew means rest. And that seventh day is based on the creation ordinance of God. God, you know, six days, and the seventh he rested. And to observe the Sabbath is the key sign, and I use that word intentionally, the key sign of the Old Covenant, of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law. And so the scenario of, of this paragraph, verse 23 through the end of the chapter, is, is quite interesting. One Sabbath, John, Mark does not tell us the day, the week, the month. He's just saying one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, we're assuming it's wheat, could perhaps be barley. It's doubtful it's corn, but it could even be corn. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Because in their interpretation of the Sabbath ordinance of the Old Testament, it was even wrong, a violation of the law, to pick some heads of grain off the stalk of wheat or corn or barley or whatever. So Jesus responds in verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence. I'm going to stop there and we'll finish with the clause in just a minute. Now, the Lord Jesus, this is really interesting. The Lord Jesus does not go to the law. The Lord Jesus does not interpret any passage in Leviticus or Deuteronomy, what he does is he takes out a story, a narrative, of probably the most well-known hero of the Old Testament, King David. And as he is running from King Saul, who had, as you know, trying to kill him, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David does something extraordinary. He and his men who are running from Saul, go into the tabernacle. Remember, the temple hasn't been built yet. Go into the tabernacle, and as you enter the tabernacle, on your right would be the table of showbread, the table of the bread of presence, as, as it's called here. And they picked up that bread and ate it. Now, just think about that. If you can think of any extraordinary situation out of the Old Testament, where you have somebody doing something that's shocking, it's David going into the tabernacle, into the holy place, and as he enters to the right is the table of the bread of presence, and he takes it and gives it to his men, they eat it. Then Jesus says at the end of verse 26, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him, his soldiers part of his band as they're running from Saul. And so Jesus 
is almost saying, listen, if it was acceptable for David to eat the bread of presence and, and satisfy human hunger, that is in line with Deuteronomy 23, 25. Now, you need to really remember that, because there is an exception to, quote, working, close quote, on the Sabbath to meet the human need of hunger. And so Jesus is saying, you're making something absolute, you're making something rigid, you're making something legalistic that you don't have a right to do. Deuteronomy 23, 25 establishes that, and the illustration of David eating from the temple, excuse me, the tabernacle bread of presence is an exception. Both are acceptable to God. Both are okay with God, because to meet the human need of hunger, it is okay to satisfy that need. So the Lord then draws this fantastic, theologically sound application. I'm in verse 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So he responds now, doctrinally and theologically, after using the example of David, to the charge of the Pharisees, and let's take the second one first, by establishing something. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, uh, you've heard me say this again, and I'm going to say it again and again and again in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Son of Man is a title that Jesus Christ uses to refer to himself. But if you were a Jew in the first century, and you heard Jesus say, Son of Man, you would think of one Old Testament passage, Daniel 7, verse 13, which is a highly messianic passage. One like the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and receives dominion, authority, and a kingdom. That passage from Daniel 7, 13 is a powerful passage for the Lord Jesus to claim as referring to himself. And so when he uses the title Son of Man, in effect he's saying, I am that messianic figure that Daniel is recording and then will interpret in a vision he had in Daniel 7, chapter 7. I'm applying it to myself, and if it is true, and if it is right for me to apply it to myself, then I am Lord of the Sabbath. So he's, it's an incredible claim of his, of his deity, of his messianic authority, and he is establishing, I am the Lord of the universe, including the Lord of the Sabbath. So the second part of his application from applying David and Deuteronomy 23-25 to what the Pharisees are asking is, you guys are loving a charge against me, the Messiah, the Son of Man, who is Lord of the Sabbath. And the first thing he says, I'm working backward now at the end of verse 27, 
is the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, what, what does he really mean by that? He, he's saying, now listen, you guys totally misunderstand the, the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was decreed by Almighty God based on the creation ordinance to benefit for the good of humans. It isn't a, le excuse me, a legalistic tenet that you got putting on the shoulders of Jews to make it a burden to Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for the good and the benefit of humanity. You are created in the image of God. And part of being created in the image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and following, is you pattern your life after God. God worked six days, rested on the seventh. You work six days, rest on the seventh. And that seventh day is to be a day of fellowship and communion with one another and with your God. It was not created as a legalistic burden, a yoke put upon the shoulders of human beings as a legalistic performance-based aspect of your relationship to God. You guys have missed the point completely. So the Lord's response to this, and it is a conflict, they are pushing back. These spiritual leaders are resisting what Jesus is saying, resisting what Jesus is proclaiming, and he draws a very deep line in the sand. First of all, you guys totally misunderstand the point of the Sabbath, and two, you are forgetting something. I am the Son of Man, Daniel 7.13. And because I'm the messianic figure described in Daniel 7.13 as the Son of Man, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so it's, it's <laughs> I mean, it is really a remarkable response by the Lord Jesus. And he's establishing two key principles that you and I can never forget. The Pharisees turned the law into legalism, performance-based approach to a relationship with God. Jesus challenges that. And second, they misunderstand totally the purpose God has for the Sabbath. And Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, is reminding them of what that purpose is. And so even, even for you and me today in 2021, we, we do not observe the Sabbath in, in the sense of the Old Testament, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Our day of rest, our time of fellowship and communion with the Lord in worship and instruction is Sunday, the first day of the week. The early church made that switch. We, we know that from a lot of different sources. But still, we have to think about the Sabbath we don't follow, but Sunday is a different day than the other six days. And so what do we do on that seventh or that sixth excuse me, that first day, or in other words, the seventh day Sunday. And so it's a, it, it challenges us to think differently about what the importance of the Sabbath was and why Jesus, as he challenges the Pharisees, is reminding them of its purpose and reminding them of who he is. So it's, it's, a, it's a quite remarkable uh, statement by the Lord Jesus as he responds to the ludicrous, the ludicrous charge 
that the Pharisees are making against Jesus' disciples. All right, you with me? Wow, I'm warm. I know you all love this warm weather, but... All right, chapter 3. The fifth and final conflict that Mark summarizes in Jesus' early Galilean ministry. And this, this to me, <laughs> is even more significant because it really does demonstrate the obstinance and stubborn rejection of, Je by, of Jesus by the Pharisees and how the Lord Jesus goes out of his way to publicly humiliate the Pharisees. It's short. It's only six verses. What I'd like to do is read all six verses, this paragraph, and then go back and take it apart, driving home the essence of the conflict and how Jesus responds to the conflict. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue. Now, more than likely, this is a synagogue at Capernaum. Now, I've talked about that before, but if you want to look at the map, you can see Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, right in the center. This was the home base of Jesus' Galilean ministry. This is where Peter lived. Peter and his brother Andrew had moved their fishing business from Bethsaida down to Capernaum. The house of Peter is just down the street from the synagogue. I have been there many times in my life. It, we know exactly where Peter's house is. And more than likely, when Peter Jesus was in Capernaum, he stayed in Peter's house. So this is probably, again, in the synagogue at Capernaum. And a man was there with a withered hand. Luke chapter 6, verse 6, tells us it was his right hand that was withered. And they watched Jesus. Now look at this. And the they, it's a plural pronoun, is referring to the Pharisees to, who are um, come up there in verse 6. So we know it's the Pharisees. And they watched Jesus. They watched him. To, what are they doing? There's an infinitive sentence here. To see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Isn't, isn't that remarkable? The, the, the picture you should have in your mind, kind of the mind picture, is the synagogue in Capernaum, and you, we can, you can see the ruins of it if you ever go there. You can see there were, there were seats all around the perimeter. They were all around the perimeter of the synagogue. Because you go into the synagogue, there aren't chairs. You stand as you're being taught the law. That, that's the purpose of the synagogue. And so Jesus has entered the synagogue, and more than likely, these Pharisees are sitting along those benches. They're actually carved out of the stone, but these benches that are in the perimeter of the synagogue. And what do they know? They're watching him. Now, that Greek word watched is there's an intensity about their watch. There's an intensity about their observation because they have a purpose. What is that? We want to see if he heals on the Sabbath. That's a nefarious purpose. That is an evil purpose. They want to trap Jesus. So let's think about this for just a moment. Jesus knows it's the Sabbath. Jesus has entered the synagogue at Capernaum purposely on the Sabbath. And because Jesus is omniscient, 
Jesus know there's a man, the withered right hand, in the synagogue. And Jesus knows that if he heals, he's intentionally going to confront the Pharisees about their interpretation and their performance-based legalistic interpretation of the Sabbath. So Jesus is intentionally, this isn't a coincidence. This isn't some random, well, I think I'll go into the Sabbath, into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Very intent. Jesus is in control of the situation. And look at the look at the result clause at the end of verse two. They're watching Jesus to see if he will heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, that Greek word for accuse is a legal term, that they might bring legalistic charges against Jesus Christ and have him charged with a capital offense. Because Exodus chapter 31, verses 14 through 17 says, if you intentionally work on the Sabbath, that is a capital crime. So these Pharisees, as I mentioned a moment ago, have a very nefarious, nefarious means evil, very evil purpose in mind here. They want to trap Jesus so they can bring formal Charges against him. Charges for what? Intentionally violating the Sabbath. I mean, this is, I don't know how you guys are thinking about this, but this is incredible. To heal somebody on the Sabbath is a compassionate, gracious, merciful, loving thing to do. They want to see if Jesus does it. So instead of rejoicing in the compassion of God shown on someone who is hurting and physically decrepit, they want to bring a legal charge against him. You want an indication of how evil these guys really are? Here's a perfect example of it. Jim? No compassion, no grace, no mercy. All they're interested in is their performance-based, legalistic approach to God. You merit God's favor by what you do. And if you show compassion to heal somebody on the Sabbath, you violated God's law. Unbelievable. All right. Jim, Jim, I had a question for you. Um, It's not just the Pharisees that are here, right? Because this man is in, in this... Yeah, there would, be dozens, there would be dozens of people in the synagogue. So he's doing this. He, he knows the impact it's going to have on the Pharisees and the charges that they'll seek to level against him. But isn't he doing it to bring others perhaps to faith? What's your assessment of that? Well, there's always, there are always two things going on, and these are, I give, give the label to them, these are messianic miracles. Isaiah says, you will know the Messiah, he will heal the sick, he will give sight to the blind, he'll give hearing to the deaf, he'll raise the dead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Jesus is doing all of his miracles for a messianic purpose. This proves who I am. He also is doing it to confront with the purpose of humiliating the Pharisees. So he has a whole purpose for his miracles. It's to prove who he is, 
but it's also to humiliate and embarrass the Pharisees. And here's a perfect example of it. He's doing messianic miracle. He will do. He didn't do it yet in, in, in where we are in reading. But he will do this messianic miracle to prove he's the Messiah. But he also, he knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what the Pharisees want to do in trying to accuse him. So he's going to humiliate them. He's going to bring up the exact point of their performance-based legalistic approach to a walk with God. If, if, if you're in this temple and you're observing all of this, and you are potentially a convert to believing in Jesus Christ, it seems to me, that you would well, that's be. What I just, that's what I am saying. That's what I'm saying. These are messianic miracles. These are messianic miracles with the intent that people will respond and believe in him. Yeah, okay. That's, that's the right. whole point that I keep saying over and over again. These are messianic <laughs> miracles, and the intent is that people will respond, you are the Messiah. And to say that you are the Messiah is a statement of faith. Yeah. So he has two purposes in mind always. Thank you. Verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, now the them refers to the they of verse 2, which refers to the sick, verse 6 of the Pharisees. And he said to them, look at the way he phrases the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. I'm intentionally stopping there. Look at the way Christ refer, phrased the question. He's forcing these spiritual leaders who had vast portions of the law memorized, tell me the Sabbath in the way you're interpreting it the way you're trying to apply it. Is it lawful? Lawful. In accordance with the Mosaic Covenant. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? The Lord Jesus is trying to engage the Pharisees to debate the moral, ethical issue of doing good on the Sabbath. Now, I think all of you would agree, and every Jew in that synagogue who is witnessing the Lord Jesus doing messianic miracles, they heard what he said, they understand what he's saying, and how do the Pharisees respond? They were silent. Their silence speaks volumes. They refuse to engage in a debate with Jesus Christ, Lord of the Sabbath, on the moral issue, the ethical issue of doing good on the Sabbath. Because the way Jesus phrased this, he's saying to them, now just a minute, you have been interested in seeing all the nefarious, evil, duplicitous aspects of what we do on the Sabbath. I'm asking you, is it ever right to do good things on the Sabbath? 
You said it's evil to pick little little heads of grain off a, a shock of wheat or a barley or, or an ear of corn. You're saying that's evil. We just debated that. Now I'm asking you, um, let's talk ethically about our duty and obligation on the Sabbath. Is it okay with God to do good things on the Sabbath? See, Jesus nailed them. By his question, he has humiliated and embarrassed these Pharisees in front of what undoubtedly were dozens of Jewish people in this synagogue. Notice verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. This is the only explicit reference in the New Testament to the anger of Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly, when Jesus took a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple, he was angry, but the Bible doesn't say he was angry. Here, the only time in the New Testament where explicitly it says Jesus was angry. What was the source of his anger? It's appositional, but look at it. Grieved at their hardness of heart. Oh, man, that is so powerful. Man, that is so important in 2021. When the evidence is so compelling for the gospel, and people respond with a hard heart that grieves the Lord, and it will ultimately produce the wrath of God. That's what the judgment at the great right throne is all about. And so here's Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the Lord of the Sabbath. He looks, at, and I love how Mark does this. He looks around at them. So Mark is telling us Jesus intentionally, intensely takes his eyes off that man with the withered hand, turns as I said, they're most likely seated on those, those little, little benches that are along the perimeter of the synagogue, intentionally looks at them. Now imagine, I'm pretty sure this is the way it was, eyeball to eyeball, and he's angry. But the source of his anger is grieved at the hardness of their hearts. The evidence is so compelling, you guys, of who I am. The answer to the question I posed to you is so obvious. Yes, it is okay with God to do good on the Sabbath, but you won't even engage in a debate with me about that. And then he does something else. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So in the front of all those people, dozens and dozens of Jews, the men are on the first floor. There's a balcony. That's where the women were. Women and men did not mix in the synagogue. So the women up on the second floor looking down, the men watching, the Pharisees along the perimeter seeing a messianic miracle being performed by the Lord of the Sabbath, after asking the Pharisees that humiliating question and a refusal to engage in the debate. The Bible doesn't tell us this, 
But I would imagine there were a number of people in Capernaum that were in the synagogue that day that said to one another, he is the Messiah, which is a statement of faith. He is the Messiah prophesied by Isaiah, prophesied by Jeremiah, prophesied by Micah, all of who said, look for what signs the man does, he will be the Messiah. But what, what about the Pharisees? The hardness of their heart was so, so instrumental in explaining their rejection. They reject Jesus despite the evidence. And today, in 2021, the same thing's going on. The evidence of the gospel is compelling. The evidence for the truth of the gospel is compelling. But people continue to reject it. And as I, when my mentor, when I was ordained many, 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 many decades ago, he said to me two things. And one of the things he said to me was, Jim, my mentor back in Pennsylvania, it's not your business to change people's hearts. That's God's business. You just be faithful in proclaiming the word. And so that, for me, that was one of the most liberating things that anyone has ever told me. My job is not to change you men. My job is not to change people's hearts. That's God's business. But I present the truth. It's up to you to respond. I don't mean you guys specifically. I think all of you guys have responded to the gospel. But that's what Jesus is doing. This is one of the most significant miracles recorded for us in the gospel accounts, and Mark's is a very short account of it, because everything is present. Jesus is intentionally doing something on the Sabbath to provoke the anger of the Pharisees, to engage with them in a debate about the moral actions of the uh, uh, possible on the Sabbath, but also to perform a messianic miracle as proof of who he is with the intent of people believing that he is the Messiah. All of that in one miracle. Now, verse 8 is the capstone of this final, of the five, the fifth and final example of conflict between Jesus and the spiritual leaders. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out, and immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, he uses it 41 times in this gospel, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Now, I want to make two comments about verse 6. Comment number one is, who are the Herodians? Because they don't appear very often in the gospel accounts. The Herodians were a small political party in first century Judaism. They were loyal to Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas was the governor of the province of Galilee. When Herod the Great died, his will was approved by Caesar Augustus, divided his empire, Herod the Great's empire, into three parts. His son Archelaus got Judea, his son Herod Antipas got Galilee, and his son Herod Philip got the north of Galilee, where Caesarea Philippi is, which is a Gentile territory. And so, the Herodians are loyal followers of Herod Antipas. So they get the name Herodians. Now I want to make a comment here. This is my first comment. The Pharisees and the Herodians were bitter enemies in Judaism. 
The Pharisees were the patriotic, patriotic nationalists of first century Judaism. They hated Roman occupation. They hated being under the, the rule of the Roman governors. The Herodians accommodated to them. They wanted, and they benefited financially from it. So this leads to my second main comment. The Pharisees and the Herodians are joining together because they have a common enemy. Who's the common enemy? Jesus. Jesus. Isn't that incredible, man? These two parties, two political religious groups that hated each other and were constantly butting heads, now, what does the text say? They're holding counsel together to do what? This guy, Jesus, has got to go. So they're begin, and this is a, this is the, by the way, this is the hinge. This is the hinge in the Gospel of Mark. Because from here on out, the enemies of Jesus are clear. And the enemies of Jesus now have a purpose. We've got to get rid of this guy. And of course, that's going to culminate at the cross, which, you know, obviously you know that. But that, it's, that's where we're headed. But you see a hinge now, very crucial turning point in Gospel of Mark. From now on, those who are rejecting Jesus, those who are Jesus' enemies, have a new purpose. And that's going to drive them. Because this is probably about A.D. late A.D. 31 or early A.D. 32. And for the rest of Jesus' Galilean ministry, these guys, these guys have it out for Jesus. He has got to go. And the reason is not only because of the Sabbath issues, but Jesus keeps humiliating them. He keeps showing them for what they really are. Master, masterful hypocrites who say one thing but do another. And their rejection of Jesus in Mark hits that phrase, the hardness of their heart. It doesn't matter what the evidence says, we don't want anything to do with Jesus. Okay, this is, obviously, I spent about 20 minutes on it. This is really an important paragraph, because everything is now coming to the surface. What Jesus is doing, why Jesus is doing what he's doing, the response of the crowds, more importantly, the response of the spiritual leadership. Got it? Yeah. Yeah, Jim, question. In Genesis, um, it talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And here, this is a different hardening in that it's self-initiated um, by, by the Pharisees, right? I mean, God didn't harden her heart. They took the initiative to harden her own heart against Jesus and what he was doing, because wasn't he, in effect, dismantling their whole basis of faith, which was Old Testament? Well, uh, yes. Let me make a couple of comments there. In Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 10, the focus is on the 10 plagues against Egypt, and wow. it says Pharaoh in the first I believe it's the first four plagues, and, Her and Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And I believe it's the fifth plague where then it says, and God hardened his heart. So the the issue with the Pharisees is not their progressive rejection of Jesus. Progressively, they are rejecting Jesus. But at this point, whether they're at this point of no return, it doesn't seem that way. Because the hardness of their heart is exactly the first four plagues of Pharaoh in Exodus 7, 8, 9. He hardened his heart. He hardened. So it's exactly the same as the Pharisees. How are they responding to God's revelation? For Pharaoh, Amenhotep II, it was the plagues that God has given us. He makes war on the Egyptian gods. This God of Israel, this God of Moses, this God of the Jews whom I've enslaved, he's greater than my God, but he still hardens his heart. It doesn't matter what the evidence shows. Pharisees, it's exactly the same thing. Doesn't matter what the evidence about Jesus. Doesn't matter if he does miracles. Their heart is so hard they reject him. Now, at some point, their hardness of hearts will lead probably to God hardening their hearts for His greater glory, and the greater glory will, of course, be the cross, because although the cross looks like a defeat, it's the glory of God revealed. So I would make a very strong parallel between Amenhotep II who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus in Exodus 7, 8, 9, and into 10, and the Pharisees. They're both responding to the clear evidence of who is this God. In, in the Pharisees, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus. In both cases, doesn't matter what the evidence says, I reject it. Hardness of heart. And, I mean, I've been a minister a long time, and I, I have seen it in the eyes and response of people. I see it in my my son's uh, wife, uh, my, my daughter-in-law, her father, a man who is near the end of life. He's very sick. His heart is as hard as stone. He he will he will not respond to the gospel. And every morning, Peggy and I pray, God melt his heart, melt his heart, so that he will be willing to receive what he has rejected all of his life. Okay. Got one question for you. Yeah, uh, Glenn. Yes. Pretty evident why the Pharisees were having issues with Jesus, but why the Herodians? Is it the where you talked about in Acts with the the Romans did not deal with insurrection well? Were they afraid that Jesus was going to lead an insurrection? Or what was the Herodians' issue with Jesus? Well, um, it it. Could be some of that, Glenn. Um, the Bible, unlike the Pharisees and all of their shenanigans, uh, the Bible's kind of silent about the Herodians. We don't actually don't know a lot about them. They were a very small political movement, uh, but their allegiance to Herod Antipas was significant. And I think what you are intimating is probably applicable here. Because, Glenn, if if Jesus, if Jesus does continue to do, I should say, what he's doing, he's going to stir up the crowds. And as he stirs up the crowds, if there's anything Rome did not want, was upheaval and disorder in any one of their provinces. And if the Herodians 
witness an insurrection-like movement among the people to make Jesus king, that will cause Rome to move in. And Rome would—now listen very carefully to this sentence—Rome would make Galilee another Roman province like they did Judea. See, Judea was a Roman province administered by the Senate, and there was a Roman governor. Galilee doesn't have—Galilee is not a Roman province, and Galilee doesn't have a resident governor. Resident governor. They have Herod Antipas, who is his technical title is ethnarch. Rome recognizes him and expects him to keep order. So if there is— a major populist movement where they want Jesus to make king. Rome is going to clamp down on that, and then the Herodians will lose everything. They would lose a position. They would lose a financial benefit of supporting Herod Antipas, and Rome would make Galilee a Roman province administered by a Roman resident governor. I think that's what's behind their willingness to join with the Pharisees. And, and that allegiance that they're forming here, it's quite remarkable actually, that allegiance that they're forming recorded for us there in verse 6 is to me the only explanation of why they would join with the Pharisees. If Jesus, if Jesus' popular following grows and grows and grows, Rome's not going to tolerate it, and they'll lose everything. That's the best exclamation I can make, uh, Glenn. Does that answer your question? It does, thank you. All right, I'm warm here. Let's move on then to verse 7. Now, we're still in Galilee. We're still in the Galilean ministry of Jesus. The center of his ministry is still Capernaum. But Mark now shifts to another focus that we've seen over and over again. Now the response is to this satanic, evil, demonic hosts that follow Satan. How are they responding? And what I'd like to do is read verses 7 through 12 and then go back and talk about it. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, withdrew to the sea means the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed. Now, notice this. Notice this from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. Now, I want to stop there for just a minute. If you want to, you can get out your map that is on page 7. If, if you don't want to turn to that, that's all right. But what page 7 does is it gives you a map of the whole eastern Mediterranean area, and what Mark is doing in one verse, actually two verses, in two verses, he is summarizing where are all these people coming from that are following Jesus, are hearing Jesus teach, watching him do these Messianic miracles. Mark says a great crowd from Galilee and Judea. Now, they're the two major segments where Jews live, or explained that to you. Galilee's in the north, Judea's in the south, in between is Samaria. But notice he says, and from Jerusalem and Idumea. Jerusalem, as you know, is in Judea. 
Idumea is to the south there. You can see it on the map on page seven. Idumea, they're the old Edomites. They had moved into that area after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the, 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 uh, the Judean uh, kingdom in 586 BC. These are, these are not Jews. Idumea, are, they're Edomites. So they, people from Idumea and Jerusalem are coming. So you have the very south from beyond the Jordan, that would be east of the Jordan, Perea and Decapolis. And then he says, and from around Tyre and Sidon. That's off your map, but that's the north. So what, what is Mark saying? People are following Jesus. The great crowd is made up from people from the north, people from the south, and people from the east. So Jesus is touching all of these areas. In his, he's in Galilee. He's in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So what Mark is telling us is people from all over the eastern Mediterranean area are coming to hear about this Jesus. Now, men, that's extraordinary. And this is a typical, this is typical Mark. Docudrama, bang, bang, bang. He tells us something. And unless we stop and think about it and really let this, let this sink in, this is a remarkable passage. <laughs> It tells us that the words, because there were no cell phones, there was no Fox News, which is probably what you guys watch, or MSNBC, which is what others watch, or CNN, which is sin for you to watch, in probably your opinion. There weren't, there weren't no social media. There's no people saying you know, on Facebook or Instagram, hey, you got to go. This is all word of mouth. And Mark is just telling us from the north, from the south, from the east, they're coming to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And when the great crowd, I'm in the middle of verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, must they crush him. Why? Verse 10, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, unclean spirits is Mark's phrase for demons. Jesus Christ calls them fallen angels. If we understand Revelation 12, 4 correctly, one third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion. These are the unclean spirits. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Isn't that fascinating? The contrast between the Pharisees and the demons. Now, the one thing we know from the Bible is demons are not atheists. <laughs> Isn't that right? That's very true. Demons are not atheists. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, James uses, listen, de demons believe, but are not redeemed. I mean, the demons have faith in the sense that they believe who Jesus is. 
There isn't a debate going on among the demonic hosts saying, hey, I wonder if that Jesus is really the Son of God. Is he really the incarnate God? No, no, no. There's no debate going on. They know who he is. For the marketing so, materials. What's that? That's for the marketing materials. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is extremely important. Listen to me. I've said this before in our, in our studies. Jesus Christ in his incarnation is plundering Satan's kingdom. Jesus Christ has invaded Satan's kingdom. That's why in, in, we saw it in Mark, early part of Mark. We see it in Matthew chapter 4. What's the theme? Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And so Jesus is now announcing the kingdom of God. Satan, your days are numbered. Your rebellion against me and the human race is joined in that rebellion its days are numbered. And when Christ goes to the cross and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, now the clock is ticking. We're not quite there yet in terms of the narrative, but Mark is just telling us something. Jesus is plundering the kingdom of Satan. And every time somebody puts their faith in Jesus, every time Jesus, what's Jesus doing in his healing ministry? What does Isaiah said? It proves who he is, but it also is a taste, a taste of what is going to be happening. And I want to remind you of something. This is a, this is something, if I call you up at 2 a.m. in the morning, you should be able to tell me this. What is, what is the plan of God according to the Bible? Genesis chapter 1 and 2, creation. Genesis chapter 3 through 11, rebellion. Genesis chapter 12 through Revelation 19, redemption. Revelation 21 and 22, restoration. We are in that part of redemption. For you and me, this side of the cross, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus has occurred. It's an event that has occurred. It's a fact of history that's occurred. The redemptive plan is sealed. Now the church, which is the salt and light, the ambassadors of Jesus, citizens of the coming kingdom, etc., we are representing the Savior. We represent the one that's here to rescue us. And the demonic hosts are active in this fallen world, trying to prevent, prevent the redemptive plan from being finalized. They're not going to succeed. And Satan has Satan was defeated at the cross, and his days are numbered. And all Mark is telling us is the demonic hosts that are present are bowing down and saying, you are the Son of God. And he strictly, verse 12, ordered them not to make him known. Why? Jesus will reveal himself and his plan his way. The demonic hosts are not going to announce the kingdom of God. The demonic hosts are not going to announce who Jesus is. The demonic hosts are not going to lay out the plan of redemption. As a matter of fact, their methodology is lies, deception, and duplicity. So Jesus is saying to them, you are not going to announce this. You are not going to proclaim this. 
The plan of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is to progressively reveal the plan. And when it is revealed, everyone will be able to understand it and will have the ability to respond to it. And if they refuse to respond to it out of hardness of heart or whatever the reason, they will face the condemnation of God. And so, again, what Mark is doing here is two things in this short paragraph, 7 through 12. First, he's showing us, as I already explained, how widespread the news of who Jesus is, is in the Eastern Mediterranean. People from all north, south, east are coming to hear and see Jesus. Secondly, he's telling us that demonic hosts are not confused about who Jesus is. They know who he is, but they will not be the vehicle for announcing and proclaiming the redemptive plan. And so it, it, I just love this little paragraph because these two amazing things, the huge number of the image bearers of God who are responding, but also the demonic hosts, there's no confusion. There's no ambiguity. There's no lack of clarity among them as to who Jesus is. They believe who he is, but their fate is sealed. They do not have the chance to respond to the gospel. All right. Now, what time is it? Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. All right. Uh, I thought it was about 20 after 12. It's almost a quarter of, of one. Um, are you with me? I spent a lot yes. of time on that. Yes. Maybe you spent too much time on it, but okay. Is everybody with me? Yep. Yes, yes. So, so much time. It was just no wait. Fidel, did you have a question? I was just going to mention. So, presently, we're at a moment of grace. Right. Right. Okay. Woody, did you have a question? No, I just wanted to say it wasn't too long. It was very thorough, and uh, I needed that. I had that. I had uh, Mark 3, uh, verse 11 and 12 marked down that I wanted to know why he didn't want them to tell. So I, I was hoping you'd explain that. Thank you. Okay. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I answered your question about that. I had All right, a let question. me introduce what we – was there another question? Yeah, I had a, a question. What? Uh, how strong was uh, Herod the Great's tie to, um, to the Edomites? Um, Herod the Great? Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wasn't Edomite. He yeah. wasn't Edomian. Yeah, he his was family. from that area that you mentioned before. His father was from that area that you mentioned his, before. His, father, his, his ancestor had moved from Edom into Edomia after the Babylonians had destroyed Judea in 586 BC. They moved in there. And so Herod was from that region. And I mean, it's really quite a story. I tell the story in my, my book, uh, uh, Covenant People. But uh, Herod's father had really seen that the future lies with Rome. And so Herod's father really formed a connection with uh, Pompey and the other Roman guys. And anyway, thank so you. I'll, I'll get I'll get the book. And well, then when his son Herod the Great uh, was given some responsibility by Rome up in Galilee, actually. And he did a good job. And so when Herod's dad died, then Rome, uh, and this kind of complicated, but Rome said, okay, you're really a good guy. We're going to make you king of the Jews. 
And that's when Herod, Herod's empire was enormous, way, way up to the Euphrates River, down to the border of Egypt. And then when he died, uh, Rome recognized the division of it among his three sons. But yes, okay. All right, I, I'm over our time here, guys. Let me just introduce for next week to get you ready. What Mark does next is he gives us another account. Uh, I shouldn't say another. He gives us an additional account of Jesus calling the 12 and what he wanted them to do. So the rest of the disciples, and I'll talk about that next week. But then as we, as we move into the rest of chapter 3, you have this very, very important teaching in verse 22 through nearly the end of the chapter of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that really needs quite a bit of explanation. So I would suspect that next week we'll deal with the calling of the 12, etc., but then spend a fair amount of our time together on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What really does that mean? What, what is that? And perhaps more importantly, can that sin be committed today? So we'll deal with, with that next week. But I'm, I'm, I've got to get going to my next appointment here. So let me pray, and I'll let you go, and I'll see you next week then. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the clarity of the Word of God. And uh, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark, which we're studying, these short bang, bang, bang events. It's, it's really amazing. He takes something very complicated and summarizes it down to three or four, five, six, seven verses. But our job is to try to get the main point of what Mark is doing as he presents Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the beginning of the gospel, verse 1 of chapter 1. And what Jesus is doing always has several purposes. To proclaim to the crowds he's Messiah, wanting them to respond in faith, but also the Pharisees to point out the bankruptcy of the spiritual elite of first century Israel. And Lord, we begin to see as well in your sovereignty how that opposition to Jesus will eventually lead to the cross, which is the most glorious event. We praise you for the cross and resurrection because that's our only hope of salvation. And we, we owe you everything because of that. I trust every man in this group has put their faith in Christ, our Christ follower, and learning and studying and applying the word of God to their lives. You are transforming us. We're part of that wondrous work of sanctification. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Even when we falter and stumble, you pick us up and help us to get going. I pray for these men. pray that they will be your ambassadors, your salt, your light in this dark world. May they represent you well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, men, we'll see you next week. Take care, everybody.